You are all weirdos. Weird science is the revolution. Weird science is the revolution. Welcome all you weirdos, Krakoan refugees, and everyone who remembers Dick Van Dyke and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Thank you for joining us for your 67th Weird Dose of X the mutant member of your Weird Science family. I'm your host, Jason, broadcasting as always from the Wrong Turn Studio, high atop stately Weird Science Tower. And here with me live from the Henry Gyrich Center for Podcasting is my man, Ruben. <laughs> Ruben, uh, it's been a long time. How the heck are you? <laughs> uh, I'm doing pretty good. That's actually pretty clever. Good job, man. <laughs> <laughs> See, I had a read. I always like to write these little jokes for the intro and... Uh, to pull back the curtain, as we say, this is the second podcast in a row that Ruben and I are recording because we did that God's podcast that you know I, I hope you've all listened to before by now, or maybe you'll listen to it next. We we enjoyed doing it, so yeah, I had to quickly come up with a little gag, and and that's where we are. Uh, so today we're going to get right into it. Ruben and I are both a little punch from all the podcasting we've done today. I don't know how Jim does this twenty seven hours a day. God bless him. He did. He did. I think he blessed my heart in a recent podcast. It was it was something where he's talking to uh to Gray about uh my opinions on Talia War Road in Yes. Yes whatever the heck that. that was. So yeah. yeah. Bless bless your heart too, Jim. Back we will not let you get away <laughs> so with today, this. So uh, today, Punchy Jason and Punchy Ruben are gonna talk about X Men number twenty seven and Immortal X Men number sixteen. Yeah. It is true that X Force number forty five also came out this week, but given all that other stuff, we decided to kick that one into next week. I haven't even read that one yet, so I don't even know what happened. Two books this week, some more next week. So without further excuse making, let's jump on into X Men number twenty seven, Road Trip. Written by Jerry Duggan, art by Phil Noto, letters by Clayton Cowles, designed by both Tom Muller and Jay Bowen. So yeah, some some pretty big things happen in this issue. Some early moments, some Dawn of X are revisited that I thought had been swept way under the rug, never to be seen again. And while I enjoyed like the list of big picture things that happened, I don't know that I'm so positive about the individual panels and word balloons and like the, the specific way we got there. So let's see if Ruben can show me the error of my ways and, and make me raise the number I have written down at the end of my notes. Scene one takes place in the Henry Gyrich Re-Education Center. Now, first off, just calling this a re-education center seems like a propaganda fail for Orcus. Now, Ruben, are you familiar with the concept of the euphemism treadmill? You ever hear that phrase? It's a really useful idea that once you hear it, you see it pop up all over. It's the idea that people always want to put a nicer sounding word on like a fundamentally not so comfortable concept. But eventually that word kind of gets sullied by association with a negative concept and a new term has to be invented. So it's like we need another one and then another one. So like uh, one classic example is the word handicapped. That used to be the perfectly polite, respectful word for, you know, of somebody who needs help with a wheelchair or some other, you know, physical issue like that. But you, you really shouldn't. It feels bad to say the word handicapped these days, right? What, what is uh, the, the currently acceptable term you'd say? Yeah, it's not even like a disabled person. It's like people, it, it always changes a little bit. And probably five years from now, we probably have to change it again because the word just kind of feels not so good. So the term re-education, that's a euphemism that's way past its expiration date. All right. That's, you, you hear re-education, you think of like North Korea. Uh, last time we saw the same facility in X-Men number 25 was called the Henry Gyrich Center for Behavioral Studies, which is much nicer. Maybe this is Duggan's way of subtly showing that Orcus, it's dropping its mask, starting to let people see who they, they really are. 
If so, if he's doing it on purpose, then yeah, congratulations. But if it's not, I'll say, yeah, maybe take a different turn. But let's give him the benefit of the doubt and say, yeah, this is, is Duggan doing this on purpose. Uh, so we have Kitty, now using her name Shadowcat, investigating Orcus's super secure re-education center prison thing. Anyway, uh, I guess it doesn't have cameras because they don't see her. That, that's fine. We'll go with it. We learn that Reuben was correct and I was wrong and Juggernaut is still alive after we saw him get, it sure looked like it was 100% killed by Nimrod back at the gala. So how, how happy were you to see Nimrod, or to see uh, Juggernaut still alive? I was pleased, but um, God, the art here, just not my favorite. I struggled with this a lot. Yeah, let's let's go right to that. I'm usually kind of a Phil, uh, Phil Noto fanboy. I really liked him in his Cable series that he also did with Jerry Duggan. That was a while back in this whole uh, Krakoan era, but this doesn't feel like his best work. I don't know if it, is it, the subject matter doesn't mad, match so much, but yeah. You the character not like okay. Phil Noto? Yeah, the character, I, I don't think I ever really liked him, but I always think of him more as like uh, doing a good job with like facial details and emotion. But here we just have these like large scenes of backgrounds that just look kind of like square blocks. I'm pretty yeah, sure I could draw this background great. and I'm not at any level of comic artist. Like he still got me on the character designs, but I don't know. This is not. It doesn't great help art. that the, the cover, which is drawn by, oh, who draws the cover? Uh, da, da, da. The cover also shows a scene that we see in the comic. The cover is by uh, Joshua Kassara and, and Google FX. And they show Cyclops being held captive with his eyes so, shown so, shut. Eyes shown. He's got thread holding his eyes closed. I can't say it. You know what I mean. Shut up. Uh, but yeah, on the cover, it looks, I mean, it looks horrific, but it looks like awesomely horrific, right? Just, just, and then when Noto draws the same thing, we'll talk about in a couple pages, it just kind of sits there. So the comparison is not helping him. But, but yeah, I, I, I love Phil Noto's work. This one, I wasn't so great. But anyway, Juggernaut, right? Uh, the explanation we get is that the gem of Sidorak, which is the thing that, you know, makes him the juggernaut, uh, Cain Marco, he says that the gem is, quote, literally coursing through my veins, which will be important later. Uh, so juggernaut being a prisoner here, why doesn't he bust out? He's, he can't stop the juggernaut. He's got an adamantium dog collar on his neck and the leash goes through the wall and to the neck of his neighboring prisoner who turns out to be Cyclops. So Marco could have escaped, but he would have popped Slim's head right off along the way. Uh, we saw the Cyclops end of this leash back in issue 25, but we didn't then know that Juggernaut was on the other end. So Scott is unconscious, still has his eyes, sh thread holding his eyes closed, uh, although this looked way grosser at issue 25 and, and also on the cover. Uh, Kitty can't free Scott because, she says, he's a living trigger for some kind of bomb. So if they try to get him out of there, something's going to blow up. Kind of kind of vague. She does phase the adamantium collar off a juggernaut and tells him, you got to break out tomorrow. Uh, I struggled with this scene because I was like, you can't just phase the bomb out. <laughs> I, I realize the bomb's a trigger, mm -hmm. right? But like, what's keeping it from activating? And it she seems weird. investigate. It felt like Duggan just wanted to say, yeah, I don't want Scott to be moved yet. And I haven't thought of a great reason why not, so just just take my word for it. Felt kind of hand wavy. Okay, so we leave the Gyrich Center now, and we'll only come back to it in the very last half a page of the issue. Now we head off to the Morlock Tunnels, where the X-Men hang out. Uh, Kitty goes there, we follow her. Notably missing is the fabricating machine that Tony sent over in that recent issue of Invincible Iron Man. Maybe it's a timeline thing, maybe that machine's in a nearby tunnel, whatever. I, I was kind of hoping to see it here. 
Kitty does have something to bring to her fellow X-Men. It's a, quote, heavily damaged Cerebro unit. Kitty doesn't know where Orcus got it, says maybe it came from Legacy House, that evil auction group we saw in Wolverine number 9 uh, two and a half years ago. Again, this is an item that Duggan needs the mutants to have, so he kind of waves his hands and makes it happen, kind of like the Cyclops thing. I do appreciate that kind of fairly obscure callback to a Wolverine thing. He, he, he tries to make it work, but it feels kind of kind of unnatural and forced. And what are the mutants going to do with the Cerebro? And as you might recall, another thing from a long time ago, Professor X removed a certain memory from Reed Richards' big old brain. This was in the X-Men Fantastic Four miniseries, in 2020 by current Batman writer Chip Zdarsky. Did you read that that series way back when? Or have I you did, read it since? yeah. I didn't read it when it came out, but I went back and read it. And I actually thought that was a cool dynamic, especially doing a bit more of a dive into the kind of Hickman Illuminati stuff. And then, you know, when I read it, I didn't quite realize that Reed and Xavier were both part of that, that you know, group. And then I do remember uh, Magneto and Xavier talking to Reed and basically being like, you know, this is not a game right to us. Like, this is our survival, so we're going to do something to your brain so you can't access this. Right. What, what Reed had done, memory. for folks who might not remember, he uh, had found a way to mask the X gene of his son, Franklin. Uh, Franklin at the time was a mutant, although he's been retconned, he's not a mutant anymore. But he, he didn't want his son to run off to Krakoa, so he masks Franklin's X gene so he couldn't use the gates. Uh and anyway, Franklin's not available right now because he and all the other Fantastic Four kids have been time-shifted one year in the future. That's a Jed McKay thing, but he's just, Franklin's not around, so he can't be part of this, this deal. And at the time, Xavier was really pissed off at the mere thought of a technology that could mask the X gene. And yeah, it was a, a cool character moment for Xavier because it really showed what he was willing to do in his new role as a protector of Krakoa. He would even go into Reed Richards' brain, you know, without permission and just take a chunk of it out. Really cold. Uh, so, what do the X-Men do? Do they give Reed a call? Or do they send him a quick telegram saying, hey, you know, Reed, we want to talk to you about this memory thing? No, Yeah, this whole that. thing was so forced. I, I hate this part. We, we needed a fight scene, and it's the classic, we need the punch-up before the team-up for no reason at all. Oh, yeah, the X-Men, Rasputin, Sink, Talon, Ms. Marvel, they hop into a a Lincoln Continental, I think, from about 1983, and Rasputin uses her TK powers to fly them off to Ben Grimm's family farm. Now, why are they in the car? Is it just a Harry Potter reference, right? I yeah, mean, I, it, I, I made the Chitty Chitty Bang Bang reference because I'm old, but... Yeah. And they talk about taking the engine out, which I was like, is just to make it lighter, but... And, and yeah, Sink has to say, oh, this is way cooler than the old Thunderbird jet. I mean, yeah, it, it's like, really, no, it's really not. not. <laughs> Well, we agree on that. It's not very cool. And if you're trying to be incognito, right, because of your issue with Orcus and not wanting to be public, flying around in a in a car is not a great way to... <laughs> yeah, they're not really being subtle here. They're just, hey, that's a car flying over. I mean, Orcus is going to figure out that might have something to do with these mutants we're looking for. Okay, and so it didn't when they... seem like they got there right. immediately, right? So you think they would have had a plan on how to bring up this conversation? Yeah, they would have talked it over. Again, this, we're meant to get something out of, uh, Rasputin here, because she, it's kind of her moment. They land and Talon says, Oh, the Fantastic Four aren't expecting us because we didn't send them an email. And we don't want to alarm them, but we didn't send them an email. Uh, so Rasputin, she kind of, she has the initiative here. She walks right up to Ben Grimm, calls him a golem, and unprovoked, just 
punches him in the next week. I, I get we want to make out that Rasputin's a badass, but we know she's a badass. I don't need to see her punching Ben Grimm. That didn't give me a happy character. Comic book I think I said last time we saw her that I was starting to like dislike her, and now this issue really cemented that. Yeah, and not like dislike in like a Doctor Doom, he's a cool to hate villain kind of way, but like a she's not as much fun as she was when we first saw her in the, the Sinister timeline. No, we're she just comes across as stupid in my mind. I yeah, again, it's kind of like she's out who of ben time. Was, there's going to be a rock guy, right? There's only four of them. Let's talk about it. Like she seems to act. Like, why does she insult him to begin with? And she punches him because he, like, puts his hand on her shoulder. But I'm like, that's your offense? Like, you're really pissed She's off? She's had that- a weird life, right? She was accompanying Mr. Sinister through the universe, the galaxy, fighting these weird creatures while he lied to her. And he told her some things about the past. Like, she knows about Ms. Marvel for some reason, but not everything. So she's going to have a weird personality. But, yeah, somebody in the X-Men would have talked about this before they arrived. I feel like they could have they could have had this fight, right? And this could have been a fine plot point, like a misunderstanding type thing. But I don't think Duggan did a good job of explaining it, and because he doesn't explain why she reacts this way, I think it's that first the first interaction with Ben Grimm is what throws it all off. If there was a justified mistaken identity type thing, where you're like, okay, I get it, why they're fighting, then I would understand why everyone else attacks her, right? Yeah, it it, it feels. Un, unearned, unnecessary. So she gets the, the fight with Ben Grimm, and then she takes out Johnny Storm really quick by putting him to sleep because she has all these. The idea is she has all these different mutants' powers, right? She can phase her way out of a Sue Storm force bubble with with Kitty Shadowcat powers. Uh, yeah, I'd say even the reaction of Reed and Sue when they come out, right? They hear, they hear some noise and they're like, "Oh, it sounds like somebody's attacking Ben." They did not seem concerned at all. They're just like, "Whatever, I'm just keeping these potato chips." Yeah, we know they. We even told that they save the universe three times a week, but they they look they look very blasé, and they make me as a reader feel very blasé. Like this yeah, doesn't seem to be. I would think important. they would react quickly to one of their family members being attacked. But For sure. But then once we've had our editorially required fight scene, finally the characters can actually talk to each other. And Reed is surprisingly okay with Rasputin using the Cerebro helmet to poke around inside his brain. Uh, long story, slightly shorter. They find that, yeah, there's a missing piece in there, but there's no way to bring it back. So is their mission a failure? Not not quite. It's saved by an offhand remark by Kamala Khan. She remembers an offhand remark of Xavier's on the night of the gala when he told her that the terrogenesis that she went through as an inhuman masked her mutant gift. Reed puts two and two together and remembers that his Franklin shenanigan also involved the use of terrogen mist, which we never knew, and... Xavier told him that he put in some kind of countermeasures at the time, so he would never be able to remember it. So yeah, this is, a super, this is a super retcon, because the whole point of it was that whatever Xavier did to him, it was supposed to be that, like, you, anytime you kind of got the idea, you, you get kind of an aneurysm. Not like an yeah, actual death, right? But like, you just like would not be able to hold on to the idea. It's almost thing over in DC right now, where anyone who remembers it is going to, you know, have a hard time. They just wipe that completely away. Yeah, I guess so no you could say Xavier it... was just bluffing. Yeah. I don't know. I guess. Not very satisfying. I, I kind of like that Terrigen Mist is involved. That's kind of cool because there's a huge history about, you know, Terrigen Mist and Inhumans and mutants and having Kamala be the, the combination. That's kind of interesting. I mean, Terrigen Mist is super dangerous to mutants. There's that whole IVX event that we even mentioned that back in 
Our Gods podcast. That happened back in 2016, 2017, and it, it killed mutants. So to see Sp- Terrigen Mist brought back to help mutants in this, this weird troubled time, it could be kind of interesting if, it, if it's made kind of clearer going forward exactly what's happening. So again, I like the concept. I don't like how we got it on panel. Okay, uh, that's the epilogue now. Last couple panels, we go back to Dr. Stasis's dining room. Uh, we see Dr. Stasis having dinner with his new pal, Firestar, who he, who he thinks has been working for him all along. And this is, I think this was my favorite couple panels from the whole book, because we know Dr. Stasis does not like to dine alone. Previously, he'd create clones of his wife and kids and then destroy them when they inevitably disappointed him. And we know Mother Righteous do said, yep. don't you do that anymore. You better cut that the hell out. Uh, in the before the fall sinister for one shot so he's lonely he's gonna have firestar over i mean who else is he gonna dine with modok not a great dinner companion i would guess <laughs> so over dinner stasis tells firestar about juggernauts and off panel he did what kitty told him to do he waited a day and tried to escape alas he was caught and beat up again by nimrod uh, orcus was not able to figure out how he got out of that adamantium collar again orcus uh you don't need Suggestion for me, but maybe some cameras in your prison. Because Shadowcat, she's not invisible. She just pays. I don't know. It, this it's is comics, the second whatever. Orcus facility she's entered without cameras and his <laughs> I mean, they could show stuff, her. Right? She disrupts technology, right? They, they could show her just breaking cameras, but they don't. And they don't mention cameras breaking. So, yeah, an okay issue. I, I like the Juggernaut Cyclops Stasis stuff better than the other pages. I like the outcome of bringing Reed back in to work on mutant masking tech, and I'm curious how that's going to play out going forward. But yeah, stupid fight scene. Characters were in kind of being dumb. Art I didn't super care for. Uh, yeah, I guess I got to go down to like a 6.3 out of 10 on this. Yeah, Where are you? Wow. I was, I was at a 6, 8. I can't go to 7. There's a lot that upsets me. I mean, it important stuff happens, and I did like the... Nods to continuity, right? Like, I didn't exactly know what was going on with Fantastic Four, but I did know that they had something that happened to the Baxter building because it's mentioned in Gods and in kind of the Gods promos. So that was kind of cool. Like, oh, something happened in there kind of outside of New York. That worked for me. Um, the prison stuff was really interesting, except uh, it kind of seemed a little dumb. <laughs> but the lack of cameras being the main point, right? I, I don't know why Orcus is still getting duped by Kitty sneaking around. Yeah, and I, I, I know they had to let Kitty come in to have that conversation, but all the choices Duggan made here, it felt like they he didn't really think about them as hard as he might have, or he didn't come up with answers that were as clever as we're used to getting. So it felt just a little bit dumber than it needed to. And maybe the reveal in the end, you know, will be that Doctor Stasis definitely knows that Firestar is playing double agent, right? And this whole thing is him kind of messing with her to make oh, her think we, that we he doesn't mention what. Uh, Dr. Stasis says to her, he says that, yeah, we're going to surgically kind of remove this Sidorak gemness from Juggernaut's veins, kill Juggernaut, and he's going to take on the uh, that power and become Dr. Juggernaut, which is a funny name. I like that. Maybe we're really going to get a dead Juggernaut, and I will be right, kind of, not really. <laughs> okay, that's yeah. enough about a book that we didn't like so much. Let's talk about a really confusing book, and... Uh, Ruben, maybe you can deconfuse me a little bit. I hope so, because I actually liked the Immortal story. I, I liked it, but it was is as uh, a hell of a lot going on here. This is Immortal X Men number sixteen, The Island of Doctor Xavier, written by Kieran Gillen, art by Lucas Wernick, colors by David Curiel, 
Letters by Clayton Cowles. And, and by the way, according to Kieran Gillen in his newsletter, this is Lucas Wernick's last issue drawing Immortal, at least for now. He says that Wernick's off to work on a super secret project. We already know that Wernick's on the Fothox Hotpox or Rotpox event, so maybe that's what, what Gillen's talking about. Maybe there's a, a whole different project, but it's been really good to have a pretty steady art team on this book. He hasn't done all the issues, but he's done most of them. And it's again, it's really given a visual identity to the series. And I hope that the the next artist kind of doesn't replicate his style exactly, but I, I hope it looks good in conjunction. Yeah. I want to so talk about the cover really quick. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I really like this cover. I don't know who the artist is, but, um, you know, we get different depictions of Apocalypse. And I actually, I really dug this one because it, it gives him kind of a modern Egyptian look and i feel like the last few iterations of his outfit have moved away from recognizing his kind of egyptian heritage hmm. so mark so, brooks uh, does these hyper detailed hyper almost surrealistic kind of covers usually and we see apocalypse here with his big old egyptian sword and his you know big old muscles and it looks like a fiery bird perching on his arm hmm. now typically Whoever is on the cover of Immortal X-Men is the narrator of the issue. That's the point of view character, which is weird because we've been expecting Apocalypse to come back in X-Men Red, and we see him here in Immortal, which it's going to be a little complicated. Well, let me explain that. It is okay, an Apocalypse. Right it. it is an Apocalypse that's narrating, but it's not the one that was in uh, Amenth with Genesis. Okay, we're going we're gonna to put that off for now because... We're going to do a thing we like to do here on Weird Dose of X and, and rearrange the comic. Uh, so we're going to start off talking about everything that happens in the Xavier scenes on Krakoa first, okay? And then we'll jump to the desert mutants, wherever the hell they are, and whatever the hell they're doing. So we're going to do the Xavier stuff first, which, again, it cuts back and forth in the book where we're sticking with one plot line to begin with. So yeah, there's no narrator for any of Xavier's scenes, which is, is notable. So let's let's recall what's been happening. Xavier is alone on Krakoa. That's Krakoa Pacific, at least as far as he knows. Shaw wants control of the island so he can exploit it economically. And Selene wants access to the island so she can secure the external gate, which is made from the bones, basically, of her fellow externals back in Excalibur number 14, something a hell of a long time. Uh, Shaw has sent several teams of Orcus commandos to the island. They all get scared off by Xavier planting scary visions in their minds. At least until the end of the last issue, when Shaw gives the latest team anti-psionic protection. This did not go well for those guys, because uh, Xavier just tore them to pieces, like murdered them to death on the outskirts of the external gates. At least that's what seemed to happen. If you go back, you don't ever actually see Xavier doing that to these people in any particular panel. We kind of see Xavier, we see it happening, but... It's all implied Xavier's doing it, but this issue we think that maybe something more complicated is happening. So Xavier continues to brood on the beach, which is what he likes to do these days, and Shaw and Selene monitor the island via what Shaw calls a geostationary orbital sentinel. Doesn't really make sense, geostationary. I have a whole set of notes here on why that doesn't work, but I'm going to skip them because it's been a long day. Uh, the satellite sees the pile of meat that represents the mortal remains of that last Orca's assault team right outside the, the gate there. And Shaw says, oh hell, we pushed him too far. So what does Shaw do now? He goes into his treasure vault, he, he calls it a treasure vault, and retrieves his very own Iron Man suit. I mean, okay, he calls it his Hellfire armor. He must have named it before Fisk stole the club from him. 
but it's very, very clear an Iron Man suit. So how are we supposed to take this? Is this supposed to be kind of funny laughing at Shaw? Is it supposed to be impressive? How did you see this, this scene? I think it's supposed to be impressive that he doesn't need his mutant powers to have some cool thing. I right, because he gave away the powers. I forgot that. Yeah. I want to mention one other thing here. Um, Please. When he go into this vault, he mentions that he's got mm. this most precious thing. It looks like it's kind of a, I don't know, like a bar of Mysterium, maybe. And he puts it in uh, one of his safety deposit boxes and says oh. he doesn't need it today. I'm really intrigued. Like, you what the hell did he stash? I, I see that panel yeah. as we don't see his precious most. We, we know that the, the suit is not his most precious thing, but there is his most precious thing in here. And I thought he was holding like his phone or something. I see him looking into like a small mailbox, bread box sized opening and looking at his most precious thing, but we don't I see think, it. Yeah. I think whatever that thing in his hand is the most precious thing. And the reason I think that is we don't see him holding it as he walks into the place. Yeah, we'll I, I guess you could read it either way there. So he says, yeah. it, I mean, this is, is bonking on your head foreshadowing, right? He says, I hope it's here in case I ever need it, which I don't today, and hopefully never. Yeah. So we got to see I'm, this. I'm interested in the soon. foreshadowing because I'm like, what the heck would Sebastian have that? Yeah, absolutely. He's going to use later. And, and we have been know. told that he is, uh, you know, an ace engineer. Even last issue, they mentioned this, where he made those psionic shields. So this is it's building on things that that Gillen has mentioned before. But it, it's I wish it didn't look quite so much like an Iron Man face. I just, I just, it looks, it looks so Iron Man-y, it, it's hard to, to not say, yeah, you're just stealing from Tony Stark. Well, they, they acquired Stark Enterprises. They have the patents. I think this is all <laughs> on the up and up. Could be. That, that would have been some kind of cool thing, too, if they did a Fay Long, kind of like, oh, Fay Long helped me build this. Yeah. But just he, to connect the I mean, stories. maybe Shaw is lying here. Maybe he's playing himself up and doesn't want to mention that he got help from Fay Long and Tony Stark's patents. We could, we could headcanon it that way. Okay, so Shaw and Selene head off to Krakoa personally, Shaw and the armor, and they start fighting with Xavier. A point is made early on that Shaw is not quite fully shielded against Xavier's psionics. Well, I'm not sure this completely matters in the end, but we'll talk about that in a second. And yeah, this is a pretty sloppy fight scene, I think. Selene is throwing rocks at Xavier that look like stretched out blobs of poo. Really gross. I guess they're rocks. It, Shaw is blasting at him with sparkly rockets. Those kind of look a bit better. And then Celine catches Xavier by telekinetically wrapping him in mud or rock or something. It, it doesn't look great. I don't know if Lucas Wernick is in a rush because he has another project to get to, but some some pages here look like his usual fantastic work, and this scene does not. Again, I'm no artist, but just comparing, he, it, compare, it's not his highest quality from what I've seen out of I think the so, idea was that Celine and Shaw wanted to communicate, so he set his dampeners so that he could receive psychic communications, but not ones that attempted to manipulate his mind. Okay, so I, I buy that. You can talk to him, but you can't make him do things him that over. he wouldn't do. Yeah, you can't take okay. over his, his thoughts. And that opens him up to uh, Xavier's trick, which is actually a bargain, right? Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, while, while this is going on, Xavier opens up mental communication with Emma, and this is how he learns about Shaw losing control of the club. Now, he had previously told Emma, you know, go away, I want to be alone. But but here he gets some information from her. And now it's when he offers Shaw a side deal. He'll give Shaw the passwords to, quote, a dozen key Hellfire accounts. I don't know what those are exactly. And if Shaw acts quickly, that is, if he goes the hell away right now, uh, Xavier says Shaw can use those accounts to get control of his club back. Now, I, I think I get this now. 
Shaw, who's always out for his own benefit, takes Xavier's deal. But he knows Celine's not going to go along with it. Yeah, so then he pretends that he's right. being overpowered and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and instead attacks her. Right, so he attacks Celine, but he... says, oh no, Xavier's making me do this. Yes. When really, he's doing it himself because he wants to go get his club back. Exactly. So later, okay. if they have to talk, he'd be like, oh, my tech wasn't good enough and Xavier controlled me to shoot you. Sorry about that. Okay, so that happens. Celine's unconscious. Uh, Shaw does talk to Xavier for a second. Uh, he, first, he says that uh, Celine, all she wants is these these stones that make up the gate. So I think they take those stones with them. Yeah. Did you get that idea too? Yeah, I think he's like, if you want to end this conflict, let's just give her the stupid external gate. I don't know how he would carry those rocks in his current situation. I don't know, some sort of tractor beam field. I'm not sure if he takes them with him or if they set up that he wants the rocks later. I can't. I can't yeah. tell. Yeah. And also, right before they leave, Shaw does tell Xavier how surprised and horrified he is to see what a murderer Xavier's become, referring to that team that got torn up. And Xavier is like shocked and confused. He says, hey, I, I haven't killed anybody. Yeah. Mm. And I actually like this in the pacing of this issue because I was like, okay, Charles, you've really deluded yourself at this point, right? Right. We've seen it. You're a brutal dude, right? Because in, in the issue itself, we have some other scenes in between here and what happens next with Xavier. So we're going to go right into it. But in the book, there's some space for the reader to think, oh, what, what could that mean? So in the And also, I, I would also say, here's Charles screwing over the Emma Tony thing, right? Like they've made a deal cool. with Fisk and now <laughs> the mutants are going to be double crossing Fisk. Yeah, right? they're definitely working at cross purposes here. Like Xavier doesn't. We don't know what exactly he learned from Emma, what details. He learned that uh, Shaw lost control of the club, but he probably doesn't even know that Tony and Emma are, are working the thing here. Yeah, the Fisk owns the club now. They, the, the mutants are not functioning as a complete team, which, which makes sense because they're in rough shape. Okay, so into the last Xavier scene, which is the final scene on the issue, we follow him as he descends into Sinister's Krakoan lab, the place where we saw Sinister with the Moira clones, kicked off the whole sinister timeline uh do we know why xavier decided to go into the lab at this moment is that motivated do we know yeah i don't think so i don't i don't see anything maybe the idea is that the conversation with Shaw calling him a murderer maybe that triggered something in his mind that caused him to go and poke around in here yeah could have been maybe a little clearer yeah so he goes down to the lab and it's nice to see that sinister's modified animal buddies are still around including Psycat and the tortoise. Do you remember Sinister's tortoise's name? <laughs> I wish I did, but Pretty yeah, it's question. definitely there. Yeah. I had to check my old notes, but he is Professor Plod. Oh, that's right. Okay. And uh, there's also a modified chimpanzee pointing Xavier towards one particular spot. We know these animals can talk, but they don't say anything to Xavier. Uh, this thing he points him to is a mirror. It's a diamond-shaped mirror. And when Xavier looks in the diamond-shaped mirror, a red diamond painted onto the mirror's surface lines up with Xavier's own forehead. And red painted words on the mirror say, don't kill yourself, please. Yep. And that's where we end. Super ominous. I actually thought it was a really wow. cool thing. A lot of people are taking this to say, like, oh, this is proof that Sinister's DNA is still in everybody. That's how I read it. What, what other reading do you think? Yeah. Well, it made me think back to the curse thing. I'm still wondering, you know, she cursed oh. him, right? Like, hmm. damn you, Xavier, or whatever. This could be the thing. Like, he could he could be the one that's only affected. Perhaps. I mean, you could make those both work, right? The curse could make the DNA come out, 
I, I think this, I really think this has to be connected to the sinister DNA that we thought had been removed, but no one was super, super sure because sinister is so sneaky and, you know, hidden pocket dimensions can hold DNA, all that stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. So, is this like a Dr. Jekyll thing? So, when he gets angry, he turns into like sinister Xavier. That's I his guess, killing. Which we haven't really seen that aspect of the hidden sinister DNA happen, right? The other sinisterized people knew they were sinisterized. They just were pretending and hiding it when they were out in the open. Where, yeah, the way this is a, a great panel too. It's a splash page. And he looks super surprised and shocked. And all those crazy emotions are right there on his face. Yeah. So and then you have to wonder, like, how long has this been happening, right? Oh, yeah. If he has been having kind of a multiple personality thing, has this been going on since they returned from, you know, the other timeline? Yeah, we could read back any number of issues and say, well, was that a sinister thing happening? And also, why is his sinister side speaking now out loud, as it were, to the Xavier side. Why reveal yourself this way? Okay, yeah, that was that was the less confusing half of the book, believe it or not. Uh, so now we turn to the half of the book that has to do with Exodus and Hope and Destiny and several other interesting characters. Okay, so this is in the nowhere, no when section. We've, we've seen that in boxes before. Nowhere, no when kind of bugged us every time because what the hell does that mean? And these scenes are narrated, and they are narrated by the character on the cover, which is Apocalypse. Except it is an apocalypse. Uh, we know that because the character who sure as heck looks like Apocalypse tells us directly, I am not Apocalypse. And would Apocalypse lie to us? Uh, he says, I am something grander. I feel he, Apocalypse, would approve. I am here for a purpose dear to him. I am here to test on the road to revelation. I think mm. he's being sincere that he is not the Apocalypse that we know. Just by the right. outfit, it's more of the old school Apocalypse outfit than what he's been wearing lately. Yeah, but, we'll, we'll see where that comes from, I think. Yeah, I expected it there to be like, I'm not Apocalypse, I'm A. <laughs> it's like, yeah, we know that. You don't want people to call you <laughs> No, I think it, yeah, it, it's deeper than that. The narrator also <laughs> says of the mutants that they find themselves in the most dangerous room of all, emphasis added, and they will not survive the experience. Now, now Ruben, do you want to... To say out loud what is in the X universe the most dangerous room of all? Yeah. I, well, I'll say what you want me to say, but I don't believe <laughs> I. I would disagree well, with say, that. Say what you ever want to say. Assortment. Yeah. Well, there's a. They say on panel that they oh they're in the white hot room, and that is total BS <laughs> to me. <laughs> okay. Although it works in the sense that the white hot room has always been total BS, and so fine, <laughs> but. If this isn't them inside of an orb that uh, Mother Righteous, Righteous put them in, yeah. which contains Krakoa, I'm going to be really annoyed. I mean, I guess they could say uh, she put a portion of the White Hot Room inside the yeah, orb, I and, think then, she, and then she put the island inside the White Hot Room. I guess that's fine. But or her orb is a link to the White. There's some. Yeah. I think it's, it's got to be both and. Yeah, but she ha they have to be in the orb because otherwise, I have like no idea how Mother Righteous would be inside it with them. Yeah, we saw Unless, her put the island in the orb. So either she then put the that island in the white hot room. Why she has a connection, we have no idea. And it's we're gonna have maybe to, the have mother righteous we've seen is not actually the mother righteous we know. Oh, that would be way too confusing. Yeah, but that yeah, it just it seems really stretched to me. And then you were asking me, uh, you know, outside the recording, like what is the white hot room? You know, God, if I know, <laughs> it's 
so it's definitely connected to the phoenix. We can yes, say that it's, for it's sure. Basically, where the phoenix lives when the it phoenix first is in showed Earth. up in the classic X Men comic that I recommended last week. So that's kind of handy, uh, and that's where they went back and kind of retconned the whole Gene crashing the shuttle back to Earth story. Yeah. It's also where you get Mysterium, apparently. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, it's it's, it's, it's like where basically Phoenixes whatever go when you they want. Die, sort yeah. of. Al Ewing's been working with it in some of his. His later books, I've, I haven't read them. I've kind of seen this in the wikis where like the white hot room is now part of the place above, which is the opposite of the place below. I think my term's kind of off here, but we talks in the Hulk books about the below. And so the above includes the white hot room. It's, it's whatever mystical high power thing a Marvel writer wants it to be. It yeah, exactly. That's the honest statement of it. I hate it just because it's so ill defined. Oh. There's and really no one rules. other reference I'm going to explain just because it has a real answer, and I kind of like that now. Uh, when uh, when he says they will not survive the experience, besides just sounding super creepy, that refers to the famous cover of Uncanny X-Men number 139 that had the text, Welcome to the X-Men, Kitty Pride. Hope you survive the experience. And it's one of those X-Men phrases that comes up all the time. So if you wonder where it first came from, cover of Uncanny 139. Okay, we're still nowhere, no when. The mass of mutants are on Krakoa Atlantic, which I guess is now in the desert, like kind of an oasis. Mother Righteous says that she she just found it here. We know she's lying, but we still don't know really what she's up to. Now we see Egg, the member of the Five, the one formerly known as Gold Balls. He's in the desert being attacked by lots of bishops, that's the character bishop, and at least one wolverine. These feral wolverines we've seen before, I, I think the bishops are new. Have we seen them? We haven't seen bishops before. Oh, I, I, okay, I didn't think so. So these are not the real Wolverine or Bishop, of course. The real Wolverine is killing his clones over in Wolverine, and the real Bishop is over in what I'm sure is an alternate universe over in Children <laughs> of the Wolves. So this can't be the real Bishop. No, uh, man. You know uh, what's going I, on I mean, uh, well, well, we'll see what happens. And that's a whole, that's an argument for another podcast. <laughs> but Egg here is rescued by Exodus and Hope. And Hope says two important things now. She mentioned that Wolverine and Bishop are two dudes who separately have each tried to murder her to death in the past. And I know Bishop spent like much of his whole character arc a long time trying to kill Hope while Cable was protecting her. That's his whole thing. Uh, do you know offhand when it was Logan tried to kill her? I, I, I can't quite, I know I know that story, but I can't bring it to mind. Yeah, I actually didn't know the reference, but. Okay, so I'm, I'm he sure tries it happened. to kill everybody. He hasn't killed. If you know Logan, there isn't time in your existence. Let us know the exact moment that she's referring to here. It would uh, put my mind at ease. Now, she lets us also know that Egg is the last member of the five to be rescued from the desert, to be reunited with the main group there on Kiko Atlantic. And last we knew, I, I think that Hope was the only member of the five who was part of our known group. So between issues, they found and rescued Elixir, Proteus, and Tempest. Uh, we, we learn that directions to these rescue mutants are being provided by righteous. Mother Righteous. Nobody yeah. else can find anything in the desert. They all just kind of wander and it's it's formless and they get lost. But somehow Mother Righteous can tell them where to go. Well, so the part, mutants, part of her scheme, right? She's getting all these thank you Mother Righteouses from them. She, she's she got, does indeed. Yeah, so she's the mutants, got the whole mutant army kissing up to her. Don't know what she's after because she's with Orcus but not with Orcus. She's playing both sides. And again, what is she going for? We used to think that she was going for being a Dominion, but we think that's closed off now. So we, her, her actual current motivation is 
very much a secret. So the mutants waste no time in putting the five back to work. There's no Professor X, no cerebral backups, but a data page from Destiny's Diaspora Diary. That's a lot of these, dude. Uh, that tells us that Mother Righteous can step in and, quote, contact the waiting room and recover their essences from there. The friggin' waiting room. Yeah, now, I was like, I thought, oh. I thought people were just going to quietly forget about the waiting room. <laughs> just like, uh, you know, in X-Men, we thought they were going to forget about what Xavier did to Reed's brain and the whole Franklin kind of being immune thing. We thought that was swept under the rug. The waiting room. Wow. Uh, now, of course, this is Mother Righteous. And this may all be a complete lie. I have nothing to do with the waiting room. Uh, so, yes, yeah, she does the Xavier thing by putting the essence back in, maybe. Uh, and, heck, I mean, the mutants she directs them to, Egg and company, they might might not really be who they seem either. I mean, I'm, I'm full paranoid here. I don't trust anything. Who are we supposed to think is being resurrected here? Uh, That's, a, that I, was my question. Yeah, I looked at it and I'm like, this seems it's like a it's supposed to be with black hair is all I can get, but I yeah. don't know who it is. But I was like, who, who is it? Like North Star or to the, is I, it someone I who no died who in the is. desert? And this after they went through the gate, is it someone they saw die at the gala? I, all we're supposed to know here is that you know the band is back together. The five can do their thing again, or at least seem to do their thing again. Yeah, the naked resurrection parties back. So for her services, Mother Righteous does get a thank you from Hope. I mean, thank you, I guess, which probably counts. But Hope doesn't entirely trust her. Destiny doesn't trust her at all, which goes back to way before the gala when, you know, Destiny tried to read her. It's been a whole antagonism way, way back, and we know mm -hmm. Destiny is right. Mm -hmm. This conversation takes place in what seems to be a new version of the Quiet Council Chamber, unless maybe uh, this part of Krakoa, Atlantic Krakoa, already had its own little mini Quiet Council Chamber. I don't know. I mean, that's the focus of this book, right? Immortal X-Men is all about the Quiet Council. Now, at the moment, the Quiet Council appears to only be Exodus, Hope, and Destiny. I mean, Mother Righteous probably thinks she's either on the Council or above the Council. That's a Council. So the last scene in this section, we're back in the desert. Mother Righteous has sent Hope and Exodus out again to find another lost mutant. This one is, um, it's Jean Grey. Hey, ain't she dead? Apparently, that's my catchphrase now. I, I it's, I'm, I'm going to stick with it. I, it's, it's my bar. I didn't do it. Uh, she's, but she's definitely dead. Uh, Jean doesn't seem to notice Hope and Exodus, even when Hope touches her shoulder. Jean is busy talking to herself. And did you notice what she's saying here? It seems like she's talking about what's going on in the, the Jean miniseries. She's saying the exact words we read last week of her talking to herself on the last page of Jean Grey number two. That is really weird because, folks, if you haven't been following that series, that's been Jean Grey doing an of-the-mind kind of thing. I guess in the white hot room, uh, where she's going through her life and doing like what if stories on if she had made different decisions. And that's what her mind is doing now. She doesn't seem to even know she's in the desert, doesn't know from hope, exodus, anything. Yeah. Really weird. Actually, I actually really thought that was cool. Cool in a confusing, weird, what the hell is going on? I did not expect that kind of way. Yeah. But it kind of makes that Jane Gray story again seem more oh, grounded. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. It, it makes that mean a, a lot more. It makes it so much more tied to Fall of X. We thought that was just kind of a time-wasting, or you know, an opportunity to do a thing with uh, Gene Simonson writing it, have her do a thing to happen with Gene Gray until we bring her back eventually. But yeah, now it seems much more closely tied in. So speaking of weird stuff, uh, what happens now is Apocalypse, the one who's not really Apocalypse, he shows up, starts fighting Exodus and calling himself 
you're Satan. And I think we need to interpret this in light of the Wolverines and bishops who have been attacking, you know, not only Hope, but definitely Hope. Those were false versions of characters that tried to kill her in the past. Now, who lives in Exodus, Exodus's own memory? Someone who has tried to kill him. Yeah. Apocalypse. Well, that's Apocalypse. They've, they've had a conflict forever. That's the whole... Yeah. And we've seen that in this series with like flashbacks to Exodus's early days, you know, before his mutant powers were brought out. So some power here is reading the mutants' minds and bringing bits of their fears to life. And I mean, it's got to be the Phoenix Force. So Hope figures this out, moves to read the mind of the really confused Jean Grey. Doesn't go so well. She got it thrown back by, you know, power. You're reading Jean Grey's mind. That's going to be rough for anybody. Uh, Hope reports that Jean's, quote, mind is on fire. It's burning. So hot. Beyond hot. Oh, I think we're getting it now. Uh, if we didn't, Hope continues, I know where we are. I don't know what it means. Join the club, Hope. Yeah, me But neither. I know. <laughs> this is every X-Men reader ever. <laughs> she concludes by room? asking, put, you know, puts it there in, in black and white <laughs> on the page. Hey, what's the white hot room? <laughs> Uh, and this is where, yeah, I was going to ask you, Ruben, what's the white hot room? But we've already done that shtick. So, but what I am going to ask is, doesn't Hope know what the white hot room is? She's had Phoenix stuff go on with herself, but well, it makes you feel any better. I asked Chat GPT, "What is the white hot room?" <laughs> while we were sitting here, <laughs> oh, great, great, and great. it gave me a lot of text, which is very consistent with um, these comics. But okay. it's all a bunch of bullshit. Oh, so Ruben, what but, you should do is paste that into our <laughs> Slack. And if people want to read that, yes. you, know, you know, join Patreon, go on our Slack, and you can see what uh, what GPT has to say. Yeah. Well, you know, they, they always say that these this system hallucinates, right? Well, it says it continues to be a source of intrigue and fascination for both characters. That's and a nice readers. way of putting it. So you know that chat GPT is bullshit because nobody says it's a source of intrigue and fascination. Oh, well. So yeah, so that's our issue. Uh, it's, it's a big issue. It's a confusing issue. A whole lot to digest. I mean, both sides of the story. I mean, this, these could have been two huge issues. We could have had a huge issue with Xavier and Sinister stuff. We could have had a huge issue with Hope and Exodus and White Hot Room Phoenix stuff. And they're both in one, one, like normal sized issue. So that's, that's crazy. Uh, yeah. Hope we helped out a, a little deconfusing. I'm still pretty confused myself. Ruben, you helped me out some. Thank you. Listeners, if you can deconfuse us, you know, hit us up on Slack or Twitter or email or carrier pigeon, whatever you got, we'll take your suggestions. Uh, the art it's of interesting. Touch- it's interesting. And actually, I think I was really surprised that they brought the five back together in the mutant resurrection. Yeah. That's crazy. I was like, is this a suggestion that like post, post, fall we're going to have all that back Hmm. i i doubt it but it is it is bringing them back together when i didn't think we'd see them back together at all until the whole thing was blown up i just thought maybe this is going to be like the false sense of hope right and i got a little bit of that i was kind of like oh this this makes the situation they're in seem a lot less dire right because you're back to being able to get all your people back but again as readers we know that there's stuff going on they don't know about. I mean, maybe now they know about the White Hot Room, but they don't know about Mother Righteous' shenanigans. So maybe they have hope, but we, lowercase h hope, but we know that something else is going on. Okay, so how to score this thing? Oh my God. I mean, I do really super want to see what's next, which is always, you know, that's a huge positive. Anytime you want to see what's next, Something good is happening. Uh, the cover of the next issue, by the way, Immortal Number Seventeen. You know who's on that? It's Jean Grey. So I guess Jean's going to be the narrator for next issue, even though she still has her own 
I don't. It's it's going to be crazy. Interesting too. Clothing- this shows you all the different eras of her and her outfit. <laughs> this is another book where it's like in one issue we'll probably get more than we got in the Lee Simonson story. Could be uh, really uh, impossible to predict. That's. No, for good and for ill, I have no idea what's going to happen next. It's going to be crazy. Other pros and cons already mentioned along the way. The art, great some places, less great in others. But, you know, as a reader, if you want to keep up with Fall of X, you have to read this book. This is not something off to the side you can skip. You got to read a Mortal, Mortal X-Men. I'm super confused. I think mostly a good kind of confused. So I'm going to give Immortal X-Men number 16. Oh, gosh. Uh, 8.5 out of 10. Oof. Oh my goodness. I know. I'm, I, I could, I could go, I could go six. I could go eight and a half. Yeah. I decided to be positive here and say, yeah, I trust Kieran Gillen's going somewhere. He hasn't let me down yet. I'm going to go. Yeah. It's all going to work out. It's all going to make some kind of sense. I'm, I, Kieran Gillen, you're my only hope. Eight and a half. <laughs> he is the better, the better half of the Doug and Gillen duo, which seemed to be like moving the forward story or the story forward. Um, gosh, I don't think I'd give it anything eight-ish, but I'm going to go seven, eight. Seven point, seven point okay. five Or seven point eight, sorry. Um, definitely, I really enjoyed it, and you got to read it if you're interested in this main plot line. But it was, um, I'm a little wary. And anytime I see Phoenix stuff, I'm just like, okay, you're just going to do a Phoenix hand baby thing to get us out of this situation, uh, which that I is, hate that. That is the risk, it is. Okay, so, go ahead. Otherwise, cool. It definitely, like, calls back to a lot of stuff, which I love that. Yeah, and it does feel like this has been Kieran Gillen's plan the whole way. This doesn't feel like he's pulling something out of his butt because he has to make it happen. Like we kind of felt in X-Men. This, this, you could tell that this was probably in his proposal back before issue one ever occurred. Yeah. I really need to understand how they ended up here, though. That, that part's really bugging me. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so that's going to be our show for today. That's going to be our second show for today. Uh, Ruben, thank you so much for devoting so much time to this silly podcast stuff on, on your busy Monday. Next week, we'll be discussing uh, X-Men Red number 16, where we're expecting the real apocalypse to show up, maybe eventually. Wolverine number 38, where it seems that Logan will be palling around with Captain America. Uh, see if we get any mention of what's going on in Uncanny Avengers on that one, or, or not. And we will somewhat belatedly talk about X-Force number 45, which, like I say, I haven't even read yet. And, and listeners, again, that's our show. If you haven't listened to our special coverage of Gods number one, uh, I got a message while we were recording, Ruben, that Jim is editing that right now, so it should be out, well, before anybody hears this damn thing. Uh, <laughs> but in, until they, well, they're not listening to Gods, and until the next issue of or episode of Weirdos of X comes out, Ruben, what do you think our listeners might do with themselves? Uh, you can read more X-Men comics, especially ones about the Phoenix in the White Hot Room. <laughs> Have a white hot week, everybody.